Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. So faith is the way whereby we come to God. It's the way whereby we know God. We come to Him by faith. Now remember, I explained last week that if you could get this word picture in your mind, that faith is our hand reaching up to God. Grace is His hand reaching down to us. And when there comes that moment when our hand of faith touches His hand of grace, then there is a connection that is made with God that is eternal, that is unending, that is everlasting, and that is the prayer I have for everyone that they would know Christ, that they would reach out at some point in their life and say, with all that I know about me, (laughs) I trust all that I know about you, and allow the hand of faith to touch that, that hand of grace. Now sometimes when you talk about how a person can be made right with God, people have the opinion based upon the covenants in the Old Testament and the requirements in the Old Testament, that there was an Old Testament way to approach God and then a New Testament way to approach God. And yet, I am clear, as I tell you this morning, there's only and always been one way to approach God, and that is by by faith. Now, all of the sacrifices and the ceremonies The covenant relationship that God had with his people in the Old Testament was to bring them to a point where they would trust him and follow him by faith. Every sacrifice, all the symbolism of the Old Testament pointed to one thing, and that was the reality that one day Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come. And there was a sacrificial system in the Old Testament that the people of God followed. And they followed it because God told them to. He was worshiped by a sacrifice. And it had to be a sacrifice that involved the shedding of blood. Because the, uh, the, uh, one of the things that God wanted to equate with people was that with sin, there is a sacrifice. That it costs something to sin. And that it required blood to appease the justice of God upon sin, the ultimate sacrifice. And so throughout the Old Testament, from the time of God banishing Adam and Eve from the garden, all the way through to the cross, you have a sacrificial system. But when you look at Hebrews chapter 10, and you read the first part of Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin meaning that the only thing that happened through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, if you could get another word picture in your head, would be that the sins of the people were simply rolled forward. They were appeased for another year. And year after year, it would require a sacrifice. And so you would go and you would sacrifice, thus more or less metaphorically rolling your sin forward for another year until the sacrifice was made again. And that process continued throughout all of the Old Testament until God finally provided a sacrifice that would then end all sacrifices. When John was baptizing on the banks of the Jordan and he looks up and he sees Jesus in John 2, remember what he said? Behold the Lamb of God, behold God's sacrifice. And then he said, which will now take away the sins of the world. 
So what happened at the cross is all of the sins from the time of Adam all the way through the time of Christ, and then all of the sins forward until Jesus returns again, all of those sins were rolled upon Jesus there at the cross. And he would be the sacrifice that would then end all sacrifices. That's why we don't bring a sacrifice in the sense of an animal and offer it this morning. It's because our sacrifice was Jesus Christ. He was the sacrifice that would ultimately end all sacrifices. And the reason you see this uh, so clearly explained throughout the New Testament is Paul were dealing, was dealing with people who were moving away from the Old Testament way of thinking to the fact that Jesus the Messiah has now come, he has now ended the sacrificial system, and thus he has ended that requirement for people to bring a sacrifice into the temple. They were still struggling with that. A lot of people did not understand that. In fact, you see this in Romans 4. And in Romans 4, Jesus, uh, uh, Paul rather, he uh, provides an example. He says to the people, particularly the Jewish people of that day, who were still relying on the sacrificial system and had not yet seen that Jesus was in fact the Messiah who was the sacrifice that now had ended all sacrifices and that all of those Old Testament saints were saved not by those sacrifices, but through their faith in the coming of the Son of God, and those sacrifices merely rolled their sins forward another year until the sins could be atoned for at the cross. Here's what Paul said, Romans 4.1. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, found? Now, everybody knew Father Abraham. All of those Jewish people certainly knew who Abraham was. And Paul was saying, what did Abraham discover? What is it that brought salvation to Abraham? And then he explains it. If you read those first three verses of Romans 1, he says this, Abraham believed God. Believe is to put your faith in. Abraham reached out a hand of faith to take hold of God's hand of grace, and Abraham believed God. Now, the sacrifices, he understood their significance. He understood those sacrifices were pointing to the cross. He placed his faith and trust. Abraham believed God. He believed one day the Messiah would come, the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. And Paul said, Abraham believed God, and that belief in God was counted unto him as righteousness. Now the word counted is an interesting word in the Greek. It's a math word, a math word. Uh, it, it means um, it was appropriated. Accounted means that God more or less uh, took his um, righteousness and he placed his righteousness on Abraham's account and he took Abraham's unrighteousness and he placed his unrighteousness on Jesus' account. Now, in theological circles, we call that the doctrine of imputation, imputation. It's to impute something upon someone else. It is to take something from this ledger and put it on that ledger. And so Jesus, who never did sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus was the righteousness of God, and Jesus Christ, on his account, he had all of the sins of the world imputed to his account there at the cross. But then conversely, what he did, when the hand of faith touches the hand of grace, he imputed his righteousness on the people who would receive him. So Abraham had the imputed righteousness of Christ. Why? Because he believed God. And in believing God, 
his, God's righteousness was placed upon Abraham's account. Now that's significant because people were coming to terms in that Old Testament, uh, sorry, that New Testament economy with the end of the sacrificial system, believing that Jesus dying on the cross ended the system. He was God's sacrifice. He took all of those sins upon himself and he satisfied the justice of God upon sin. The Bible uses this word propitiation. Uh, he was the propitiation. Uh, another word would be satisfaction. He was the satisfaction of God's justice upon sin. That's why it's so important that a person receive Jesus as Savior. When you receive Jesus as Savior, here's what you're doing. You're, you're uh, 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 receiving his payment for your sin. You're saying, in essence, God, I believe you died on the cross for, for me and I accept your payment, you picked up the check. I accept your payment for my sin. Now let me give you another way to think about it. Jesus Christ, we believe he was God incarnate, right? We talk about that at Christmas time. What is carnus? Carnus is flesh. Incarnus is to be in flesh. So Jesus was God incarnate, God in flesh. He was as much man as though he were never God. He was as much God as though he were never man. So Jesus being a man was still God, and being God, he was infinite. Now here's where I'm going with this. On the cross, Jesus being infinite suffered in a finite period of time. What you and I who are finite would have to suffer in an infinite period of time. Did you follow me? In other words, I'm not infinite, I'm finite. And if I'm going to pay for my sin, it's going to take me all eternity in order to do that. So I don't recommend that. <laughs> I'm telling you, 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 you don't wanna go that way. So when you receive Jesus Christ as Abraham did by faith, and you receive him as your savior, you're receiving his payment for your sin. Because Jesus, as the hymn writer said, paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And so I can tell you when you receive Jesus, your sins, now look, your sins in the past are forgiven, your sins in the present are forgiven, and your sins in the future are forgiven. If they weren't forgiven, then every time you sin, he'd have to come back and die for that sin. <laughs> because he is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God on sin until we step into the very presence of God. Now sin still separates a child of God from God, but it doesn't separate you from your relationship to God. Remember, I've taught this. There are two things that will bind you to God. One is relationship, one is fellowship. Relationship is established, and in that relationship you have with God, it is eternal. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot become unsaved. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't understand. He said, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he go the second time through that birth process? And Jesus said, no, you're missing the point. He said, there is a physical birth and there is a spiritual birth. And he compares the two. And then he said, that which is born of flesh, physical, is flesh, emphatic. Let me ask you, can you be unborn physically? <laughs> no, you cannot be unborn physically. There's no way you could go back through the birth process this morning. And Jesus used this as his illustration. He says, just as emphatic as a physical birth is, your spiritual birth is just that emphatic. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit, Jesus said, is spirit. 
Ephesians 1, 16, he says, you and I are now sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, not by, with, meaning the Spirit of God seals you in the deal. When you receive Jesus as Abraham did, in that moment you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning that all my sins that I will commit until I'm in his presence are forgiven, just as the sins of my past are forgiven. So none of those things affect my relationship to God. Once saved, always saved. But here's what is affected when I sin. It is my fellowship with God, my fellowship with God. You can be in a relationship with someone and be out of fellowship with someone. And if you've ever been in a relationship with anyone, you get that. This morning, you can be in a relationship with someone you don't like very much. You may love them, you don't like them. Now don't look at, your, don't look at them right now, because I'm, I'm, this is that point in the message when I look at your forehead. I do not make eye contact with you. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know, I don't wanna know. I just don't wanna know. But the point is you could fuss and fought all the way in here, then you walk through the, hey, how y'all doing? Oh, we're glad to be here. Oh, it was a great thing. Oh, I love spending time with her. It was, ama- it was amazing. You know, you know what we do. And so I'm just saying, you can be in a relationship with someone and not be in fellowship. Well, if that's true of you and me, that's certainly true of our relationship with God. There are a lot of people that disconnect from him, walk away from him, drop out of church, just walk away. Now, love God, but don't like him very much. That's in in relationship, out of fellowship. And so what you do when that happens is at some point, God brings you back. At some point, he calls his children home. He leaves the 90 and nine and goes after the one that's gone astray. If he belongs to him, he'll go after him. And I'm just suggesting to you that when that happens, how we respond to the shepherd, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, John didn't say you, your, he said we, our. So he's talking to Christians. He said, if we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, meaning fellowship is reestablished. That's why when you get back and you feel connected to God, again, there's a feeling you get associated with that. You feel at peace now because you were distanced from God. And now as his child, you feel connected or reconnected to him. It brings about an incredible feeling. So I'm just suggesting to you that when you receive Jesus, it doesn't mean you're not going to sin anymore. I hear people say, well, Bill, if you really believe once saved, always saved, as you say, then you're giving people a license to sin. Well, the Bible says in 1 John that if we continue in sin without consequences or conviction, we really don't belong to him. If you read Hebrews 12, the Bible says there's one of three things that happen when a child of God goes away from God. Number one is, is uh, he speaks by his word. Just like you do your kids. Hey, don't do that, quit that. I've told you stop, quit that. If that doesn't work, you, you go to death con two. <laughs> and you say, now there's a consequence. And all you teachers love and logic, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Right? You did this, and I'm, I'm sorry that you made that mistake. It's a bad mistake for you, right? My mom didn't really understand love and logic, by the way. I wasn't of that generation of love and logic where you got a lot of reasoning. I wasn't abused as a child, but my mom did use a switch from time to time. She used a paddle. She used a belt from time to time. And you've never lived till you've heard that belt sliding through those belt loops across, you know, swap, 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 swap. 
you know. He looked like, my dad looked like Lash LaRue coming at me with that belt sometimes. I, I'm just saying they weren't of that generation. And again, they didn't abuse us, but they employed a different form of consequence. So I'm just saying, you know your kids, you love your kids, you know their pressure points, you gotta find their pressure point. You, you gotta find that place that you can put them where it makes them uncomfortable so they understand life involves consequences. And then, boy, he goes hardcore in Hebrews 12. He then says, thirdly, he says, should we not much rather be in submission or subjection to the Father of spirits? And I'm giving this in the King James. He said, and then live? What's implied in that comment is that there are some Christian people, God may call them home. <laughs> he may say, you're gonna mess things up a lot less up here than you're going to down there. I'm just gonna bring you up to the big house. I'm just gonna call you home. What's my point? This is the point I don't want you to miss. That God has placed certain uh, systems in place where he deals with his wayward children. And so he will deal with us when we go astray. But he doesn't judge us, he chastens us. God doesn't judge his kids. Judgment is reserved for the wicked in the final day, the Christ rejectors. So you're not experiencing judgment. Judgment happened at the cross. You're experiencing chastisement. Another word is correction. He's just correcting the course. And so when you have that relationship with Jesus and you are in that fellowship with him, you are saved and your sins are now dealt with forever. And it all, listen, it all goes back to the moment that you received him by faith. And last weekend to set the table, remember we talked about the first part of Hebrews, we talked about what faith is. Remember the three words? Faith is substance, it's evidence, it's understanding. And then down in verse six, he talked about the significance of faith is that uh, if you believe with all your heart that God is and you believe that he will do what he says he will do, he said that is faith. And this morning we're gonna go another step and we're gonna begin to see some examples of faith that he gives us in Hebrews chapter 11. And he starts out by giving us the example of Abel, of Abel. Now, Abel, as you know, was the second born son of Adam and Eve. Their firstborn son was Cain. Now, have you ever wondered why, if he's giving examples of faith, why didn't he use the example of Adam and Eve? They were the firstborn, I mean, the first created of God, by God. I mean, why didn't he use them? By faith, Adam and Eve. You know why? He, he, he doesn't use Adam and Eve as examples of faith because they didn't need faith. They had a relationship with God that did not require faith. Let me explain that. They saw God face to face. When God created them in the Garden of Eden, they saw him face to, they never had a moment until sin enters the picture in Genesis three where they were separated from the presence of God. You didn't have to convince Adam and Eve that there's a God. They knew there was a God. They walked with him and they talked with him and they saw him. And I would go so far to say they embraced him in the garden. So their relationship with God was based on seeing. And for them, seeing was believing. <laughs> they saw him. They knew at a set time in the garden, he's gonna be there and he's gonna walk with them and they're gonna talk. In fact, you read the story and that happened up until the moment they sinned. And when they sinned, the first time in all human history, they hid from God. They hid from him. They, 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 they didn't want to be in his presence. Sin brings about a, an element of shame. 
Sin brings out the element of separation. They sensed the separation, and they had never experienced that emotion before. So you have God showing up as he always did, ready to take his walks with them in the evening hours of the day, and he calls out because they're not there. And he says, Adam, where are you? And every time I read that, I see some humor in the question because this is the God who is sovereign. You know, sovereign means God is, rules over everything. He knows everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. God is God. And don't you think for a skinny minute, he didn't know where they were. He wasn't saying, oh, come out, quit hiding. You're making me look bad in front of the angels. That's not what's going on here. He knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. He knew where they were. Here's the problem. They didn't know where they were. And for the first time in their experience, they had to acknowledge the fact we're not where we used to be in our relationship to our heavenly father. And can I tell you, you can't correct where you should be if you don't know where you are. Remember, you go to the mall and you're trying to find a store and you look at the map in the mall and there's the red dot. And what does the red dot say? You are here. <laughs> and the reason that's important is you can't get there till you know where here is. And in your relationship with God, you gotta know where you are. You, you have to be honest about it. And God is calling to Adam and Eve saying, where, where are you? And they had to be honest, well, we're not where we used to be. We're not as close to you as we once were. We're hiding from you and we're feeling something we've never felt before because we're away from you. We feel shameful for the decisions that we've made. And, 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 and that's where they were. But the point I don't want you to miss as we look at Abel is the fact that it did not require a lot of faith for Adam and Eve because for them, seeing was believing. But when you get to Abel and you get to everyone going forward from Abel all the way until our generation for us now, believing is the secret to see. We have to rely on something beyond our physical ability to comprehend God. There's something in our heart. There's that element of faith that tells us there's God. By faith, Abel. It required faith. Abel had not seen God. He had heard his mom and dad talk about him. In fact, I believe Abel was the first man of faith. He's the first one in the scripture, in the recorded Bible, that talks about someone knowing God through his faith. And so you have this faith of Abel who was able to see God and he saw God because he had faith was the leading edge of his ability to see God. He believed and then he saw. By faith, Abel. So Abel born outside of the Garden of Eden, Abel then hearing his mom and dad talk about being with God and setting the example of someone who knew God, Abel had a faith that he exercised and placed his faith and trust in God. Romans 12, three, I shared it last week. Everyone is given the measure of faith. Abel had a measure, he had a measure of faith. So did his brother Cain. In fact, Cain had enough faith. He understood the sacrificial system as we'll get into in a moment. Otherwise, why would the boys brought sacrifices if mom and dad hadn't taught them that's the way to God? It's through the sacrifice that's required, a blood sacrifice that points to the cross, and it's through that sacrifice by faith that you can know God. So they had a measure of faith. Cain had the same measure. 
So you start out, according to Romans 12, three, with a measure of faith, meaning that it doesn't take more faith for you to know God than it does for me. We have the same amount. Now, you may not be aware of your faith. So Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let me tell you what, how I think that works. I think the faith that comes by hearing and the hearing by the word of God is when you hear a message like this from a messenger like me, you become aware of a faith you didn't even know you had. All of a sudden you are cognizant of a God that you may not have been aware of in your life. You're aware of a faith that you didn't even know you possessed. And when you hear me tell you that according to God's word, you have enough faith right now to receive Jesus as your savior, then faith comes by hearing. All of a sudden, the awareness of your faith came about by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the awareness of their faith was made known by the word that they heard, and they obviously clearly heard the word communicated by Adam and Eve. So look at our text with me, Hebrews eleven four. By faith, Abel. Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now that's not saying Abel was better than his older brother. It was saying that his sacrifice was better because his sacrifice was what God had required. So he brings a better sacrifice than Cain and through this sacrifice, he obtained witness that he was righteous. This brought about God's righteousness in his life. Remember imputed righteousness? That, that faith in God brought about that righteousness, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, through his faith, Abel, even though he's been dead many years, he still speaks. His legacy still speaks. His life is still living because I'm talking about Abel many, many years later. Through his death, he still speaks. And the first thing I would point out quickly is what I'm calling the contrast, the contrast of their faith. The contrast of Cain's faith and the contrast of Abel's faith. Now, I told you a minute ago that I'm certain that Adam and Eve taught Cain and Abel about God and about faith. For example, when you read Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter three, verse 15, it's the first promise of the Messiah. Let me read it to you. God said, I will put enmity, which is ill will, our mutual hatred between you, he's speaking to Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now we know that the male carries the seed, so he's referring to a, a supernatural process. He's talking about a virgin birth through her seed. And he, the Messiah, will bruise your head which is a fatal blow, to bruise one's head, to crush their head is a fatal blow, and you will bruise the Messiah's heel. When you, the heel is bruised, it's a crippling blow. So this is the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. He said, I'm gonna put friction, enmity, ill will, hatred. The devil hates you, you're set at variance against him. But the Messiah will one day come through her seed. It will be a virgin born son, not through the seed of the man, not through Adam's seed, but through the pure seed of God. And so that's how the, the son of God will come. And ultimately what happens in the process is he will crush your head he will kill you, he'll take you out, Satan, but you're going to bruise his heel, you're going to give him a crippling blow. When you read uh, Zephaniah, I'm sure everybody's read Zephaniah. <laughs> it's back there where the pages of your Bible are stuck together. <laughs> but if, if you could find Zephaniah, 
and you read it, you'll find an interesting verse where he asks this question, it's prophetic, what are these wounds in your hand? Where did they come from? It's someone in heaven, it's a prophecy about someone in heaven asking Jesus. And they said, he'll say, he'll respond, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. Based on that scripture, have you thought about this? The only scars in heaven, and we've heard people write about this and sing about this, but the only scars in heaven are the scars on the body of Jesus. I think they'll be there to remind us all one day of the sacrifice that he made so that we could be there, have our sins forgiven, to be in heaven again. It is a, a bru it's a limp. He'll walk with a limp, he'll walk with those scars because it's the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. He said, look, here's how this works. You're gonna take the devil, listen, the, the, listen, the devil is a decided fact. I believe in a real literal entity called the devil. He's a decided fact, but he's also a defeated foe. God defeated him at the cross. He knows his time is limited, so he's gonna do as much as he can with the time he's been given to create as much havoc as he can and chaos as he can to keep you away from God or to keep you from doing anything for God because he knows he is a defeated foe. And the only ground that the devil can take from us as God's children is the ground we give. So don't give me ground. Don't you give up, don't you give in, don't you give out. And so in Genesis 3.15, they had the prophecy. Now here's what I know, here's where I'm going with this. Here's how I know. Because the firstborn child of Adam and Eve, his name is Cain. When you look in the Hebrew, you know what the name Cain means? You don't do the etymology of the word. The name Cain means acquisition. He is here. He's here. Now wait a minute. She didn't fully understand. She didn't fully comprehend. But it shows you that Adam and Eve knew that through the woman, the Messiah would come. They believed in that so strongly that they named their firstborn child in the hopes he's the, this might be the Messiah. Now we know that's not the case. Because God said, I'm gonna produce a son. Look, only God can produce a deliverer. Adam and Eve produced a deceiver. <laughs> the seed of man produces deceivers, only God can produce deliverers. And so there's that contrast, but what I don't want you to miss in that is the fact that Adam and Eve obviously understood the clear gospel of Jesus in the Old Testament, and that is the Messiah one day will come. And so they believed that, and they also believed in the sacrificial system because remember when they realized they were naked, they clothed themselves in fig leaves, and they tried to, and what did God do? He slays an animal. There's bloodshed, and he covers them in the skins of an animal because he knew without shedding of blood there could be no remission, and the sacrificial system was started by God, and he used it as a symbol, as a type, to equate sin with sacrifice and to know one day there would be a blood sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. It would happen at the cross when Jesus comes. And so that was clearly set in Adam and Eve's minds and they obviously communicated that to their boys. A beautiful chapter that complements what I'm teaching you this morning is there in Genesis chapter four and you see this played out. And in Genesis chapter four, you see down in verses three and four, here's what the Bible said. In the process of time, Cain brought an offering, and in the process of time, Abel brought an offering. Now let me, let me stop long enough to say, they had a, designate, a, a, a designated time when they would worship. Think about that. In the process of time. So they knew on a certain day we're gonna worship. So they knew, okay, there's, and not only a certain day, there's gonna be a certain place 
there obviously had to be an altar. So they not only had a certain day where they would worship, but there was a certain place that they would worship, and there was an altar where they would worship. And both of those boys knew that I have to bring an offering, I have to bring a sacrifice when I come. Now, Abel was a, a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a farmer, the tiller of the ground, the Bible says. So both brought an offering. Um, Abel brought an offering that God required, a blood sacrifice. He brought, I suppose, a lamb without spot or blemish because in typology it was going to picture Jesus who would be the sinless son of God. So he brought, and so the Bible says in the text I just read, he brought a more excellent offering. He, he brought what God required. He gave God what God asked him for. But here's the contrast. Cain didn't bring that. Cain brings an offering of his own imagination. Bring, he brings an offering of his own effort. He, he had cultivated and he had grown crops, so he brings an offering from the fruit of the ground. It was a bloodless sacrifice, and we know that because you can't get blood out of a turnip. <laughs> Sorry. So he brings that, and the Bible says God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's. Second thought. You see now the consequence of their faith. God said, Abel, you've done well. I'm gonna receive your offering. Cain, you have not done what I have required. And what's sad about this in this moment, when you read Genesis 4, you know what happened at that very moment? The Bible says Cain chose to walk away from the presence of God. When Cain could not reach God by his own effort, when Cain could not reach God by his own ability, when God rejected that and said, there's only one way, and the way to me is through a blood sacrifice, or we'd say today, the way to Jesus is through the cross, Cain just said, I, I can't deal with that. I, I can't handle that, it's too narrow. I, I don't believe that. I, and the Bible says Cain chose, he exercised his free will, and he walks away from the presence of God. And the Bible gives us a little snapshot that he would build a city and not only would he build a city, but he would build a system that would be completely away from God's plan and purpose for his life. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, the writer of 1 John identifies Cain. He identifies Cain with the works of, of the devil. And what I don't want you to miss as you think about this is Cain willfully, willfully, with both eyes open and a determined heart, he willfully rejected Jesus. In that moment when he brought something that God did not require, he did not accept the payment of Jesus, we would say he rejected the cross and he was gonna to try to get God to God another way. He, in that moment, willfully rejected Jesus. Now I'll say, I see people every week willfully reject Jesus. They just say, no, no, next week, another time. Maybe not militantly, but passively. Some of them in the room, some watching online. When they hear me talk and they know I need Jesus, I've never received him, and they just simply exercise their will and say, no, not today, I'll do it another time, I don't feel it, it's not gonna happen today. Here's the, pro here's the problem with willful rejection. Willful rejection can lead to judicial rejection. Uh, Genesis five, God said, my spirit will not always strive with a man meaning that I'm not always gonna work in the hearts of people. You, here's the point. You can reject Jesus so many times that he won't bother you anymore. 
You've turned him down, you've turned him down, and so there won't be any more conviction. And so a willful rejection of Jesus can bring about a judicial rejection by Jesus. For example, in the Gospel of John, you read time and time again, you read this expression, uh, John 5.40, for example, they will not come to me. Did you hear the wording? Will not, willful rejection. They will not come to me, Jesus said. I've invited them, they won't come. Cain, bring the offering, bring the blood offering. Bring, they, he won't, I'm bringing the fruit of the ground. No, that's not what I'm requiring. You gotta go to the cross. There's one way to heaven, the way, the truth, the life, John 14, six. No, I'm gonna go another way. No, you are willfully rejecting Jesus. And so Jesus said, they will not come to me. And then when you read John seven thirty four, here's what you see, they cannot come to me. They will not come, they will not come, they will not come, and finally he says, they cannot come. Willful rejection continuously and continually can lead you to a point of judicial rejection where he will not bother you anymore and he will not draw you anymore. Now when I teach that principle, I'll have someone invariably send me an email and go, Bill, I think I'm there. I I, I think I'm at that point. And I always respond to say, no, you're not. You know why? Because it bothers you. <laughs> it wouldn't bother you if you didn't, if you thought, oh my goodness, I might be there. Why are you thinking that? Because he's still drawing you. You hadn't gone that far. I'm worried about the people that doesn't bother. <laughs> because the willful rejection leads to judicial rejection. And that's exactly what happened here with Cain and with his brother Abel. And then you see, lastly, the conflict of their faith. Cain was so angry, he was so angry that God had rejected him that before he, when he leaves the presence of God, Genesis 4, 8, he kills his brother. (laughs) He kills him. Have you ever thought about this? The first murder of the Bible was over a religious difference. Not politics, a religious difference. They killed each other over a religious, how many people have been killed in history over religious differences? How many wars going on in the world today find their their root cause in religious differences? Was the very first, look, when, when a, what religion does, religion tries to accomplish converts by force, force. I told you last week, devil pressures and the devil pushes. Religion tries to get converts through force, you comply. Here's the rules, here's the ritual, here's what you do. Bow this way at this time, this many times. Do this, follow this, don't eat that. Rule, 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 ritual, ritual. Force you into compliance, that's religion. And some people, because there's that God-shaped hole in the heart, are drawn into that. But here's the difference, Christianity deals with faith, not force. There's a power that's greater than the power of force. It's the power of love that compels us to the cross. God says, I love you in spite of you. You don't have to comply to anything. You don't have to follow anything. You don't, if you come to Jesus, you come just as you are. I love that hymn. We used to sing it at my dad's church all the time. Remember Billy Graham closed those crusades with this hymn, Just As I Am, Without One Plea but that your blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come. You know how you come to Jesus? You bring your messed up self to him. 
You bring your confused self. You bring your, you bring your angry self. You come, you come to Jesus just as you are, and he says, him who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Abel says, God, I'm not perfect, but I'm bringing in a sacrifice. Cain arrogantly said, I know what you require, but God, I'm gonna do it my way. And you have this incredible difference between these two men. And we today are not talking about Cain, not in the sense that we're saying he did it right. We're saying Cain identifies with Satan. Abel, by faith, brought a sacrifice. And God honored his faith. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I thank you today for your word. Thank you, Lord, that even in the Garden of Eden, Eden even in the very opening chapters of your word, you've made the gospel clear that people are saved by faith looking to the cross. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone in the room or anyone watching online who has never received you as Savior, that this would be that moment where they just humble their heart right where they are and they say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart. I believe you died on that cross for my sin and I accept today your sacrifice for my sin. And Father, I thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.